hey, there's a lot of things we could be doing tonight, but to be here tonight and to be thinking through why this book that we claim to base our life on is truly a clear, propositional, objective message from God is really the most important thing that we can be doing in an, in an age and a day like ours when everybody's trying to figure out what's true for them based on what they think, how they feel, what the majority, you know, thinks. It's just, it is the two most important words that we could uh, get used to saying in our minds, in our conversation, is who says? I mean, who says? It comes down to that, doesn't it? I mean, if you watch the life of Christ, it comes down to those two words. Whether it's a decision that he's going to make about what he's going to do, whether he's confronted with Satan, and he says, do that, and he says, no, it always comes back to, uh, it, it's written. I mean, this is what God says. That's why the whole Old Testament is filled with those statements, and we looked at many of them. Thus says the Lord, God says this. And if we're not convinced that what we're reading today in our leather-bound book that we lie here on the table, if we're not convinced that this is God's word, that God has spoken to us in these pages, then we are lost now, on, a, on a sea of relativism and uncertainty. We better get this clearly tucked away in our mind. We've got to have some review with all eyes up and no one cheating. If this is a book from God, it all starts in God's mind. It's got to get from God's mind to the mind of the prophet. We call that step. Very good. It's not just the last book of the Bible. If it's in the mind of the prophet or the apostle, then it's going to get on paper. We call that step. That was a little weaker, but okay. Heard that. We prefer, we prefer a different word for that. We prefer God breathed, right? God breathed. And we're grateful to the NIV and the ESV for maintaining that word for us. If we've got a table full of documents that claim to be from God, we've got to decipher with some reasonable and logical criteria, well, is this really a part of God's God-breathed library? We call that step canonicity. Very good. And once we say, well, this is a book from God, and it's got to make its way through time to us, we call that transmission. We'll deal with that tonight. If we've got our tables filled with documents that have made it through time and it's got to get into our Hebrew uh, Old Testaments and our Greek New Testaments, our critical editions, we call that step textual criticism. And once we have those and we're fairly convinced that this is an accurate picture of the original and the Hebrew and the Greek, we now got to get into a language that we can study and teach to our kids, we call that step translation. Very good. The links in that chain are critical. And to get from God's mind to this book in English, we better make sure that we're confident about every step along the way. So let's pray, then we'll get into tonight's study. We're on page 28 as we're in the middle of our study of how we got our Bible, the origins of the Bible. Let's pray for a minute before we go any further. God, we thank you for the meal. For those that missed that prayer, we want to pray that now. We're grateful. You give us everything, every good gift, every a morsel of food that nourishes the cells in our bodies is a gift from you. We thank you for it. Do pray, God, you'd keep us healthy if you would. That would be great. If not, if you choose for us to be ill, I pray we would learn to rely on your grace and we'd learn to rely on you in the midst of our struggle and suffering. And God, I pray that as we think about our, our lives being founded on the word of God, that we would be able to think intelligently and logically and carefully through the reasons that we build our lives on the book. So God, give us a good night tonight as we think about getting that 
message that was inscribed, God-breathed on paper from those dates way back when to the extant or existing manuscripts that we have now. Help us to think that process through as we work through this chart in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, page 28. Let's talk about transmission and not the one in your car. We're going to talk about those days. We've got to get a framework here. Now, as we move through this chart on page 28, what you need to understand is that the dates of the composition, which is what we're going to try to, as best we can, codify, write down, and understand. And if we can think this way, that's great. As we understand the date of composition, that does not reflect, in every case, the date of the events that that book records. You follow me, right? So we've got to keep that in mind. So we're going to move through this chart. If you've ever been through my Old Testament survey class, or maybe you're taking your kids through Bible survey for kids. Are you doing that? Nobody. Fantastic. <laughs> so glad I wrote that book. Somebody, somebody tell me, please. Just lie to me at this point. Somebody's doing Bible survey for kids. Yeah, you are? Fantastic. Not a bestseller on Amazon, I understand, but... If you are, this is a simplified chart of what we create for our kids. The left-hand column there, you see the arrows, the flow of biblical history. There's only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven Old Testament books that advance the basic framework of Old Testament history. And we won't do all of those at once, but we'll keep those as the anchor books for us, the, what I like to call the timeline books that move us from the first one all the way to the last one, and every other book fits in somewhere to the chronology. Now, they're laid out in some kind of chronological order based on the events that the book records, which means that the date of composition that we're going to put in the box next to each name doesn't always correspond. Sometimes it's a recapitulation, a retelling of the story, and it's, it's way later than the events that are recorded. So with that in mind, and I've said that twice now, maybe three times would be too many, we need to think through the dates of all of these things. Let's start with the Old Testament and let's move to our chart. Genesis, if we were to come up with a date for the recording of the first book of the Bible, which of course is not the date for Adam and Eve in the garden, right? We, we recognize, because if you're going to stand with the resurrected one, that Jesus understood these as being books of Moses, as Israel had, and as we all do, not all of us, but there are some skeptics among us, but we understand that what the Bible has come to say and attest about itself and through Old Testament and Israeli history, Jewish history, we understand that this book was written after the Exodus. Key date for the Exodus, 1445, some would say 44, I go with... 1445 B.C., the Exodus is when Moses led the people out of Egypt. He's in the desert, and during that stint in the desert, how long were they in the desert, Sunday school grads? He writes the first book of the Bible, 1425 B.C., and for those that are going to take a few books uh, with confusion to realize that we're moving backwards in the numbers, just remember that, okay? We're moving to 1 B.C. and 1 A.D., so these numbers should get smaller. Genesis. What does Genesis mean, by the way? Most of these books in Hebrew, Old Testament, were named with Greek words. So Genesis, what does that word mean? Beginnings. And it records the beginning of the world, the beginning of the nation of Israel, the beginning of many other things. Second book in the timeline progression here, the flow of biblical history, the book of Exodus. Now this is rough and dirty, but we're assuming around the same time, Moses also wrote the book of Exodus. The five books 
of Moses. They're also called the Pentateuch or the Torah. Torah is the Hebrew word for law. Pentateuch, the Greek word, it's a compound word. It means the five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of Moses. They were written, many of them around the same time. Well, they're all written during Moses' wanderings here uh, with Israel. But 1425, rough and dirty, uh, the book of Exodus. What does Exodus mean? To exit, to get out. What were they getting out of? I know this isn't an Old Testament class, but we'll refresh all that Sunday school knowledge in your minds. The third timeline book is the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers. Book of Numbers is not a transliterated word. It's a translated word, and Numbers means numbers. And what were they numbering? People, right? Taking a a census, the people were growing. This is the latest time frame book, if you will, of Moses. Well, that's not necessarily true. We got Deuteronomy in a minute, but that really completes this, this time frame in the desert for Moses. Now, next to Exodus, I know there's one next to Genesis, but let's fill this one in first, is the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus comes from the Hebrew word Levi. And why is Levi so important? Interactive church. Because that was the line of the priests. And the priests need rules, and these were the rules for the priests, and that's what the book of Leviticus is all about, and we assume around the same time, 1425 B.C., that book was written, book of Moses. We've got the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, Hebrew compound word, namas, is the last part of that. Namas means law. Deuteros means twice or second. This is the second telling of the law, and this is, we assume, the last book that Moses wrote in his chronology of writing these five books, Deuteronomy uh, retells, expands, gives us a little more information, a little more rationale for many of the laws of God, and that is the book of Deuteronomy, probably written around 1406 before the death of Moses. Now, occasionally in these books, and I know the purest among us will say, well, it talks about him dying in the book, and clearly he didn't write that. I understand that. There are a few things here and there throughout these books that were clearly given for clarification later on as the scribes put those things down. Scribes, and I meant to put that somewhere in tonight's outline, which I don't think I did. Does anyone know what the word scribe means? Yeah, that's what we connect it with, but the root of that word really means one who counts. Why was that so important? Because a real good scribe wouldn't just say like we do when we copy something from some piece of paper, they would count. And they would count not just the words, they would count the letters of the words. And you always see the ancient Jewish pictures of the scribes with their pointer stick so that they could count. They had the quill to write, they had the counter to count, and they were counters. They were counting words. So some of the scribes clearly put a few things in there like the death of Moses at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. First five books. We've got one more, though, we didn't fill in, and that is the book of Sunday School grads, you know this. Job. And Job's got a nice big question mark by it because it is debated and you can go through five or six different professors and ask them about their theories on Job and everyone will give you a different answer. This is what we know about Job and we'll try not to be on too many bunny trails tonight, but we're talking about God's word. So we've got to have a few, few sidebars here. Job is clearly a book that is set within the context of the patriarchal period. There's all kinds of clues. The monetary Uh, uh, words for the monetary currency of the day. Ancient, it's during the time of Abraham, at least. Uh, We've got uh, cities and geographic locations that don't make any sense later 
in, the, in, in Israel's history. We have uh, him being the uh, patriarch of the family and, and, and offering sacrifices. I mean, clearly, this was before the coming of the Levitical laws and the priesthood. Um, we have no references to things we would expect references to if it were after the giving of the law. That does not mean that the composition of the book of Job took place at this particular time. I'm not saying it was the first book written, and many people jump to that conclusion. As a matter of fact, many would say that it was written during Solomon's day uh, to answer a question that was hot during Solomon's day called the retribution principle. Why is it that good people, seemingly good people, comparatively good people suffer? Uh, and some of the linguistic clues may give us hints that maybe it was later during the monarchy of Israel. Nevertheless, it's set within the context of Genesis, so we put it here next to Genesis. The date I can't help you with, but I would assume it is prior to the 9th century B.C., uh, and anywhere before that, I'm not real sure. And you can read all about that if you want. Just look up Job in your Bible dictionaries and have fun with that. All right? <laughs> Let's fill in the next one here. Joshua. 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 What does Joshua mean? Some of you named your kids Joshua. What does it mean? You know what it means? Savior. Who else's name in the Bible means Savior? Jesus. Jesus and Joshua, same word. Same word, Yeshua. One is a Romanized, um, actually, all of the words that we have, uh, what is it, 18 kids and counting, was that the name of that show? Well, they all named their kids Jays. I always laugh at that because they're good Bible folks, and you've named your kids, I'm sure, some of you Jays, and that's great. But you know, in Hebrew, there is no J sound, right? That all comes through German and the word Jesus, even though it is a Romanized word from the word Yeshua, the, the word Joshua, it comes down, to us, comes down to us through German, and all those hard just sounds come from German. Anyway, I don't know why I think that's funny, but they go, all their J words, and it sounds supposed to sound so biblical, but to a Jewish ear, it doesn't sound biblical at all. <laughs> it sounds German. Uh, but anyway, just a tidbit for you with kids named Joshua or Jacob or Joseph or whatever you've got. They'd all be yuh sounds, yuh. Hebrew loves the yuh sound, not the juh sound, no juh sound. That's fun, huh? That was worth coming tonight. Meatloaf and language lesson on J's. Judges, speaking of juh sounds, judges. Judges, you picture, you know, Judge Wapner, you picture, you know, Judge Judy. Uh, that's not what the judge was in the Old Testament. Some judges did that, but the judges in the book of Judges, the 14 judges that are discussed in the book of Judges, are military leaders. They deliver the folks from the oppressors. They were usually foreign oppress oppressors, and God had punished the people in a cycle of sin, captivity, and release. Give me some of the judges. Give me a name of the, some of the most famous judges. Samson. Who did you say? Deborah, some lady over there said, Deborah. Yes, Deborah, that's right. Deborah and Barak, they were a team, by the way. But that's fine. Yes, and what else? What's that, Jephthah? Yeah, Jephthah. Wow, that one's not fun. They made a foolish vow. What's that? Solomon? No. Gideon, there you go. That's another famous one. Samson, did we say Samson yet? Samson? Othniel, very good. Did you look that one up? Othniel. Not much about Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar. Those guys usually are 
just in the background somewhere. But anyway, Judges, that's fun to talk about. About 1,000 B.C. as we assume when that took place. It covers a long period of history, over uh, 400 years of biblical history. Ruth is a supplement to the book of Judges. Judges is a very negative book. Joshua, conquest, right? We're going into the promised land. They get to the promised land. Judges, sin, lacks, prosperity, which, by the way, God, through Moses, predicted would happen. When you get your land and you get prosperous and you rest, then you will be tempted to compromise. And God said, don't. Which, by the way, is the problem with the American church today. You do understand that, right? Half the nonsense, can I say this strongly? If the veins pop out on my neck, forgive me. Half the nonsense in evangelical Christianity would not happen if we were in downtown Cairo or if we were in China, or if we were in, some, uh, in, in Saudi Arabia, you name it, it's not going to happen. Because when the church is under the press, pressure of persecution, and we're not walking around high-fiving people in the street that we're Christians, particularly in places like the Bible Belt, see, we would never have the kind of, of heretical nonsense that passes for biblical Christianity. Uh, you've got to know that the danger of, if you want to see the danger of the American church, watch the move from Joshua the conquest when people were pioneers to going to the settlers and the prosperous times of the book of Judges. And you know, if you look at that span, that's a 500-year span, okay? How long have we been a country? Just over 200. That's nothing. Do you see what I'm saying? The cycles of biblical history, they move slowly. We kind of read them quickly, but we're in a period, unfortunately, of, of the Judges, and we need God to continue to raise up reformers, if you will, that will help us get our mind back where it needs to be as it relates to serving God without compromise. You got a line there. Why do you think I put that line there? Something major is going to happen between Judges and 1 Samuel. What happens? We, start, we, have, a, we have a nation, right? We, start a, we, go, we go from a theocracy, if you will, at least a mediated theocracy, to a monarchy. Talk about the monarchy a lot from the pulpit. Monarchy is when God puts kings in place to lead because he's prepping us, ultimately, in his providential plan for the great king, Jesus, King Jesus. He's coming, but they start with a not-so-good king uh, whose name was Saul, and they basically wanted the popular vote, if you will. We want the popular guy, and God uh, got tired of that because it wasn't a great choice. So God said, you pick the first one, I'll pick the next one. And he picked David and Solomon. And you see that there, you've got Saul, David, Solomon, that's the united kingdom of Israel. We get a split, then we have a short, uh, well, seemingly short northern kingdom uh, that lasts there for about 300 years. And then we have an extended southern kingdom that lasts about 450 years. And uh, then both of them get knocked out. The northern kingdom to Assyria, the southern kingdom to Babylon. Sennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar, and you get a lot of bad things happening, and we don't need to get into all that right now. But what we do need to get into is the timeline books. First Samuel is the next book. First Samuel. Samuel, who of course is the last of the judges, the judges were these temporary leaders. They weren't, they weren't kings like the rest of the nations had. They wanted a king, and they wanted to make Samuel king at one point. But Saul becomes the king, and God works through Samuel to anoint that first king. And the book of 1 Samuel is all about setting up the monarchy of Israel. That book was probably penned by Samuel in 975 B.C. Oh, and by the way, the ones and twos books 
First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Those were never two books originally. They were always one book originally. So they're always going to share the same date. So Second Samuel, same date. If Second Samuel and First Samuel were one book, and First Samuel was pinned in 975, we assume obviously they're one book. They were both pinned in the same year. So Samuel writes this portion of biblical revelation and history at around 975 B.C. We okay? It's a different box. No, no, different box. I know this is not to scale. <laughs> it's Emmett Brown once said. Yes, uh, it's not to scale. Let's keep going here. There's four four boxes, big boxes. I know they're fat boxes because I'm trying to. My page is not the same as my 16 by 9 PowerPoint slide. 1 Kings and 2 Kings. That's one book initially, but they're in two boxes. Right, this takes us down to the next dotted line. Okay, are you tracking with me now? 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. 1 Samuel, setting up a monarchy. 2 Samuel, setting up David, God's choice, the man after God's own heart. 1 Kings, we now have a split in the kingdom. That's the real drama in 1 Kings, which is written many years later. And 2 Kings, right, we have the defeat which we're reading about in our annual Bible reading in the book of Jeremiah, which fits into the second king's timeline when Assyria and Babylon take out the northern tribe and the southern, the northern tribes and the southern tribes. How many tribes of Israel? Twelve. How many apostles? Twelve, right. Twelve is an important number. Just said that because it's an important number. Twelve tribes. How many tribes go to the north? Ten. How many tribes go to the south then? Two. That was easy. Okay, let's fill in a few other ones here. David, now this is tricky, and I do give you a time frame, though this isn't even really close to being inclusive. Most of the Psalms were written between 1030 and 930 B.C. That 100-year span right there was where most of the Psalms were written. Now, if you know anything about the Psalter, right, you understand that there, uh, there's a Psalm in there from Moses. Well, that, had, that couldn't have been written then, right? Obviously it wasn't. Uh, so these psalms go back to, you know, the, the 15th century uh, B.C. And we even have some post-exilic psalms in there which go to 500 B.C. So really, if you wanted to be accurate, you perfectionists among us, you, you might want to put, if you were going to be comprehensive, between 1500 B.C. and 500 B.C. But most of them, as either they were dedicated to David or they were written by King David or the shepherd David, they, fill in, they fall into this period between 1030 and 930, many of them by Asaph, Asaph and others. We're going to do a series one day on the Psalms. Can't walk through it in totality. <laughs> How long would that take? But uh, I want to do some kind of, uh, you know, selected Psalms exposition at some point. So we'll try to do that one day. <laughs> but we're only in Romans 6 right now. You understand? <laughs> Yeah, sounds like we've been in Romans forever, and there's 10 more chapters to go. We'll get there, Lord willing. Or not, Lord willing. All right, where are we at now? We got Solomon, and he is uh, prolific. He's prolific because David had done all the fighting, and Solomon inherited the peacetime, and so he did a lot of writing. Now, Proverbs isn't all Solomon, but most of it is from Solomon, and that's 
probably penned around 950 B.C. He also wrote another book, Ecclesiastes, which we attempted to exposit, and I think quite well, at uh, women's retreat. I say we, that was a corporate we. I didn't preach there. But there were some good preachers there. Amen. 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 Uh, Ecclesiastes. Women's retreat was good this year, wasn't it? I heard it was the best ever. And men's retreat wasn't half bad either. That was your opportunity, and you blew it. Fumbled completely. All right, Ecclesiastes 9.30 and Song of Solomon, and I kept these in canonical order, which I won't do with the prophets, but this is probably inverted. Ecclesiastes was probably the last book he wrote, and Song of Solomon, his honeymoon book, was probably before the bulk of the Proverbs. So Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, but I kept them in canonical order for you, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. All right, and onward we go. We got First Chronicles here. Now, my box doesn't look like your box, but somehow put that in there. Now look at the difference here. We're covering the same span of time that Second Samuel covers, at least half of the book. And it's 450 B.C., and the book of Second Samuel was penned probably by Samuel in 975 B.C. You can see the gap of time here between those two. And yet, I mean, this maybe is a good book if you're ever in 1 Samuel or working through it in a small group Bible study or something. You know how you can get the harmonies of the Gospels where you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all together in columns, right? That's, that's called the harmonies of the Gospels. They make a harmonies of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And that's interesting because you get all those columns side by side when they cover all the same material. And if you're really a go-getter, you want to get a copy of what's called the oldest Bible, which is the Dead Sea Scrolls on all that same information, and then pop open your Josephus. If you've got all four, five of those, right? If you've got Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Dead Sea Scrolls, and Josephus, you'll get the Pentaquantophonic, Pentaphonic? Is that a word? Experience. No, it's not. Thank you. Um, it is now. The pentaphonic sound. Yeah, anyway. Uh, Second Chronicles, again, is like First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel, one book, 450 B.C. Covers that period between Second Samuel, First Kings, and Second Kings. What it does differently is that it covers everything from the southern kingdom's perspective. And I say from their perspective, it really doesn't change much of the perspective. It just changes the details. It leaves out the 19 or 20 kings of the north. Not interested in those because they turned into the Samaritans. They were intermarried with the Assyrians. Not interested. The southern line which, through which the Messiah was promised to come, that's of interest to us in 450 B.C., right after the exile. And we want to examine all that information and look at it as we anticipate the Messiah. So First and Second Chronicles gives us that great perspective. Now this little book here, Lamentations, let's pin that next to Second Chronicles there at the very bottom. The dotted line is the exile, or as I say in our Bible survey for kids, Israel in prison, I think I call it that. Israel goes to prison. Now Israel in total doesn't go to prison because Assyria has already come and scattered the ten northern tribes, but the southern two tribes, primarily Judah, the tribe of Jesus, uh, that goes into exile to Babylon. 
And all the stories from that point on are focused on the southern kingdom. Lamentations 586. And we're going to read that soon in our daily Bible reading, are we not? Coming up. Okay. Now again, the shape of all this continues to change. This looks like a hangman game. <laughs> I just realized, but it's not. Let's fill in some of the prophets here. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight prophets right now that minister during the divided kingdom, we call it. Two to the north, six to the south. Good to keep these in some kind of chronological order in our minds. Now, what's the difference between major prophets and minor prophets? Size of the book, that's it. No special difference except major prophets are majorly big and minor prophets are minorly small. So, we put them all together without distinguishing them. Amos, okay? That's the first one, 760 B.C. And close to that time, Hosea goes and prophesies to the north as well. So Amos and Hosea, northern prophets, that's all we got. And if you start to see the biblical history as you ought to see it, you recognize the attention is totally on the southern kingdom. It's on the southern kingdom because that's the lineage of David and that is the lineage of Christ. That's the focus. Not a mistake. And we have six prophets to the south. Joel, in 830 B.C., you, just because it's next to Amos, this isn't obviously to scale either, right? We got Isaiah, 740. And again, these guys have ministries that span for decades. But when was that final chapter penned? We put those dates there for you, 740. Micah, around 735. Joel, Isaiah, Micah. Zephaniah, 635. He also goes to the south. And what is the message of all these prophets? You're reading Jeremiah with us right now, right? Even if you're not, nodding would be good at this point. Read the Bible with us. We're reading through the Bible in a year. And, and, and it's important that we do that. It's all on the website for you. And as a matter of fact, you can just be half asleep because there's even a button on one of the sites I think we link to where it reads it for you. How easy could we make this? You click it and it reads it to you. Where's that site? What's the message? Repent. That's the message. Guys are in sin. You need to repent. That's right. Jeremiah, that's the book we're reading right now, around 626, and that's kind of the medium date because obviously he prophesies all the way to the end, right? We're there right now. You know, the whole Egyptian imprisonment and all of that. That really should go at the bottom. I don't know why I didn't put that 586. I probably should have. And Habakkuk. Habakkuk actually dips into the, the uh, exile because Babylon comes to the southern kingdom and starts to take Jerusalem down. That's the capital of the southern kingdom, right? What's the capital of the northern kingdom? It's called Samaria later, but, I mean, yeah, it's the Samarian kingdom, but do you remember that discussion in John chapter 4? Remember Jesus is having the conversation with a woman at the well? He's going through Samaria. They keep looking to Mount Gerizim instead of Jerusalem. And they say, in this mountain we say you should worship. You guys say we should worship over there. We got a lot to cover. We'll just keep moving on. But um, Habakkuk. Habakkuk's 
upset because how can you let Babylon, those filthy idolaters, be used to punish us? He struggled with that. What a great book. If you're feeling like the world doesn't make sense, you can commiserate with Habakkuk in his short little book and get the answer that he gets. That's a great book to study. All right, more hangman charts. We have three prophets that go to foreign countries. The first one is Obadiah in 845 B.C., Obadiah. I like to call these the out-of-town prophets. Is that what I call them? Yeah, prophets out of town. They're not just prophets out of town. They're prophets that are going to minister to other countries that are out of town. And Obadiah goes to what country? Edom. What's the capital? What's the big city? They still tour it now if you go to Jordan today. Petra. They put the big cities into the rocks. Have you seen those pictures? I should have put some pictures on the PowerPoint. They, they were prideful. Never will we fall. And Obadiah goes, yeah, you will. And they did. And now you can tour their former homes. Jonah, he's an out-of-town prophet. <laughs> and he wasn't real thrilled about it either. And you know his story because it's so dramatic. 580, he goes to what country? Well, he goes to the city of Nineveh. What's the nation? Assyria. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. Nahum, 650 B.C. Where does Nahum go? Back to Nineveh. Here's the thing. Jonah is reluctant to go to Nineveh. Why? Because he's afraid that God might forgive them. He doesn't want them to be forgiven. Right? We can all identify with that. Sometimes you go, that guy deserves it. I don't want him to be forgiven. And he didn't want to go preach to them. Now, so he ran. You know the story of Jonah. Nahum sent to the same place, and he says, fine, no problem. He goes, preaches a message. They don't repent, and God punishes Assyria, the capital city of Nineveh. All right, we have two exilic prophets, we call them, because they were prophesying during the period of the Babylonian captivity. Daniel, most famous who ministers for many years during the transition from Babylon to Medo-Persia, the Syrian kingdom, 605. And right on into the mid-500s. don't know why I put that so early. Ezekiel, 583. Now, Daniel is in the courts of the Babylonians, and Ezekiel is among the remnant floating around in the countryside. I know we don't know how to picture these guys, but picture Daniel with hair gel and a nice jacket on and Ezekiel with tennis shoes and shorts. That's the picture. Same message, same concept, same concerns, two different audiences, two different cultures. The remnant in Babylon and the remnant running around in the countryside and in Israel. Dotted line is the captivity. We have two post-exilic books. Ezra, 450, Nehemiah. Ezra, 450, Nehemiah, 425. Ezra goes back, is sent back to rebuild the temple. Ezra is just concerned about the uh, temple being not rebuilt along with the rest of his countrymen, and they're all disappointed, much like Nehemiah is. These stories parallel. God sends back Ezra along with uh, a few others to and a big remnant, a big return, a, a, a remnant that goes back to Israel to rebuild the temple. And they rebuild the foundations of the temple in chapter 6, and Ezra 
teaches the people, and it's a great restart and rebirth. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, and he is sent back to rebuild the... And that makes no sense, because most people would think, well, we ought to build the walls, and then we can worry about the worship. <laughs> we'll worry about defense and getting our home set up, and you know, then we'll worry about... That's not how God does it. Let's fix the, let's fix the place of worship first, and then we'll worry about your, your national security. And he does. He rebuilds the wall in 52 days. Great story. Esther is the complement to Ezra because here's a gal who's not there in the forefront, uh, you know, rebuilding the temple, but she's there saving the people in uh, the Persian uh, Empire under their domination. Talked a lot about that when we talked about the Apocrypha last time, or briefly at least. 475. We've got three final prophets in the Old Testament. Haggai, these are all post-exilic, under the dotted line, 650. Zechariah, 520. Malachi, 430. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Not Zephaniah, Zechariah. These are all back there trying to get the people focused again on doing what they're supposed to. And guess what the problem is? They get back to the land. They get security. They get the money going. The economy starts to recover. Everything starts going well, and they start getting lax about their priorities just like we saw in the book of Judges. So these preachers go back in large part to get the folks, even though life is going well for them, to get their priorities back to following Yahweh wholeheartedly and putting God's priorities first. As Jesus put it, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the message of the post-exilic prophets. Great, those dates. So we've gone from 1425 B.C. all the way to 425 B.C. you got a thousand years of biblical history. And I don't know, correction, not a thousand years of biblical history, a thousand years of literary composition. That's what we have. All right, dealt with that. Let's deal with the New Testament briefly. I already put this for you, so if you're tired of writing, this is your lucky page. If you ever want to read through the Bible chronologically, and I'm not sure why you would in the New Testament, but this, these are the dates of the composition. This is our best educated guess at it. James, we assume, is first for several reasons. Galatians, clearly an early struggle with, some of the, corresponding with some of the events in the book of Acts. First Thess, Second Thess, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, Mark, now we're assuming somewhere in the 50s and 60s. And even if that's the case, you do understand that like when 1 Corinthians deals with the issue of the Lord's Supper, these were the first written books from the apostles about how to do it before they ever got, I mean, and he gives instructions about the Lord's Supper before we ever got the written biographies of Christ. That is an interesting uh, situation. Now, all of the Gospels are going to have question marks by them here, as you can see as you look down your list, because I'm not sold necessarily on Mark and priority, as they call it, Mark coming first, or the two-source theory, if you know what that is. Uh, I'm not buying a lot of that, if you care. Romans, Luke, Matthew, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, Acts, First Peter, Timothy, First Timothy, Hebrews, unknown author, Paul, 
writes Titus. These are the pastoral epistles. Second Peter now. Second Timothy. That's the last of Paul's letters. Jude. Date on that is uncertain. We don't know. But it seems like it may go there prior to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. More on that later. John now rounds all these out after the fall of Jerusalem. And he writes John, the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. All of those, if you really look at what he's doing, summarizing so much of what goes on in the New Testament and obviously in the book of Revelation, looking us forward to what comes next. Good deal? Let's talk about languages. I know that's what you want to do on Thursday night. You want to talk about languages. Now, I hope that this is something you knew before you came. But the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, primarily. Let's talk about Hebrew a little bit. Usually we put prefixes to the word Hebrew. Words like paleo-Hebrew or proto-Hebrew. But look in all the sources you want, unless they're completely out to lunch and just have a, you know, a God-hating you know, chip on their shoulder. You can find proto- or paleo-Hebrew writing preceding Moses' day. There was a time when people said, well, I don't even believe that Moses, and they didn't even write back then, you know, in the 14th century B.C. I don't even believe that. Uh, that's all been debunked. We have adequate evidence. I've got a bookshelf full of information. You can find it on the Internet. You can look in our bookstore. You can look online and find plenty of sources that the Hebrew language was alive and well prior to, to Moses. It is called a Semitic language, and we'll use that term sometimes. I don't use it very much because it doesn't really communicate much anymore, but a Semitic language, that comes just for your, round out your knowledge from the word Shem. Ham, Shem, and Japheth, who are those guys? Brothers. They had a built boat building business. <laughs> they built one boat. Uh, yeah, Noah's kids, and that Shem was the patriarch, if you will, of the Near Eastern, Eastern, Middle Eastern peoples. And that, those languages that came through Shem, we call Semitic languages, languages of the Middle East. The look of the language has changed, and I thought this was of interest because we have so much now on the Internet. If you just go poking around on the Internet looking for ancient Hebrew text. You'll see it, and I just want you to see its development a little bit. So let's do that. And, and this is just kind of looking up at the screen here. Um, but this is what modern Hebrew looks like, and you're used to seeing that, right? It's like an eye chart. <laughs> uh, but remember, it reads right to left, right? Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, He, Vav, Zion, Hate, Tate, Yoth, Kaf, Lamed, Mem, Nun, Samak, Ayan, Pei, Sade, Kof, Resh, Sin, Tav. That's the Hebrew. Wow. That's, that was easy, okay. <laughs> Do it in Greek for you if you'd like. Um, that's the modern Hebrew alphabet. That's not what Moses was bent over writing, okay? That's not what it looked like. The Paleo-Hebrew, what, pro, what does proto mean? Prototype, what does proto mean? First or before, right? That's like the Hebrew language before the modern Hebrew language. Or paleo is probably more of what we want to call it. Paleo just means ancient, old, right? Old Hebrew, which, by the way, that's really old. 
What we now print up today and write today, we don't write it so much, I guess they do, but they print it, your typewriters type it, and the books go to Israel, get bookstores full of that look, those letters looked like that. That is ancient, as I'll show you. But if you want to get way back to when Moses and Joshua and Samuel were writing, didn't look like that. We need to go to Paleo-Hebrew. And Paleo-Hebrew looked like this, okay? And those are the same letters, right? Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zion, He, Tate, Yil, Kaf, Lamed, all the way down to Tav. It's there the, and if you look and you start to compare them, you can see that some that make absolutely no correspondence, and some you can kind of like, I, I need a laser or something. Surely someone has a pocket laser, no? Look at, the, look at the one, two, three, four, fifth letter over. And again, I'm reading from Aleph. Is that a familiar character over there? And it looks like a little tent with a gap there. And then go over two, three more, and you got one that looks almost exactly like it. Do you see the similarity there between hey and hate in Hebrew? Look down at the two letters that correspond with it. There's the laser. Who has that laser? Who's got You really have one, don't you? Watch, watch this. What's that? What did you just say? I don't have it. I don't have it. I'm using the, the touchpad. No, it's all right. This one right here, do you see this one? Right? Hey and hate. See how much those look alike? Look down here. Hey and hate. See that? You can see some corresponding concepts, right? These, these last ones here, well, you're not going to find much there. But you can almost see Olive coming together. Kof, if you take off this half, you start to see the P-looking symbol. See it there? If you were, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right. This W, this is a scene, and if you move the dot over, it's a sheen, scene and sheen. That's the, the scene and sheen of Paleo-Hebrew. You can see it's starting to look like that. This is probably what Old Testament Hebrew text looked like. To the best and the oldest manuscripts we can possibly find, this is, this is the bizarre-looking, almost hieroglyphical, you know, uh, almost some of these like Akkadian script. Cuneiform almost, these, right? Anyway. Modern Hebrew, Paleo-Hebrew. Now, watch it develop, okay? We're going to slide the modern Hebrew up here. Uh, here's the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, Paleo-Hebrew, if we're going to say Paleo-Hebrew is maybe, um, let's just say 5th century B.C., just to put it in the middle of the, 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 the exile, okay? Or before the exile, or after, it's in the middle of the exile. Dead Sea Scrolls were tucked away in caves when? Well, in the 1st century, but they were a library between the 3rd century B.C. and the 1st century, right? Probably actually 3rd B.C. to 1 B.C., that period. So we're now talking around the time of Christ, what did Hebrew look like, right? It, it, it looked like this, okay? Now, do you see it starting to develop? Now, unfortunately, this isn't an alphabet. Uh, this is actually from a Septuagint, I think is what I copied here. I didn't write down what this was. But look at this. Now look at the, the scene in Sheen. Now it's looking a lot like the scene in Sheen, isn't it? See that? Look at the Aleph. Has turned from that K-looking letter. It's starting to look like the modern Hebrew letter. And Aleph, I wish I would have had one with more Alephs, with the big stem here, really looks like that. And that's not a very good Aleph. They make better Alephs than that. I've, 
seen that. But anyway, they have more of a tail here. But do you see that? It's starting to look a lot alike. It's developing now to look like this. And this is, let's just call this 2nd century B.C., okay? Now let's keep moving. This is Masoretic script. This is from the 10th century A.D., the Masoretes, okay? Now watch what the text says. We've gone from 5th century B.C., 1st century, 9th century A.D. Look at that. That's the Aleppo Codex this is the writing, I don't even write it down where I grabbed it from, but um, something in the, old, in the Old Testament. But look at the script now. Now look at the, this is a, a sheen. Look at that, that looks exactly like that almost. See it? Look at the mem. Where's the mem? Where did it go? There it is. Mem. See if we can find any olives. Look at the olives. I love the olives. They're so fancy with their olives. I mean, uh, lameth, lameth, right here. You see it? And, and Olive has totally become Olive. Look. Now, I say that because look what that is right there. That's, that's 930 A.D., okay? What they're typing up today looks almost identical to what they were writing a thousand years ago. That's pretty big. Take English back a thousand years. Mm. You see what I'm saying? This is an amazing preservation of a language, a language that has not really changed so much from Proto-Hebrew, Paleo-Hebrew, Masoretic Hebrew to Modern Hebrew. Because Modern Hebrew, if you know anything about the history of Israel, is Ancient Hebrew. What they tried to do when they reassembled Israel and recreated the language, now they had to come up with words like plastic and jet airplane and turbine and stuff like that that they couldn't find in the Bible. But they used the Masoretic language for the most part of the 10th century AD and created a modern language. And what they did in modern Israel is tried to recreate this language. It's exactly what they did. Now you see a difference here between Masoretic Hebrew and, and Dead Sea Scroll Hebrew. What's the difference? One major difference is all the dots and dashes, right? You see dots and dashes here? No. Now look, Masoretic has dots and dashes and, and, you know, all these little dots. Okay, let's figure that out. Here's how we'll figure it out. 22 consonants in the Hebrew language. 22 consonants. Now here's the thing. There are no vowels. There are no vowel characters originally. If you look at the Masoretic text, they added points. We call them vowel pointings because they wanted to help people with a dead language at that point, who's dead and dying, I'm pretty much dead, uh, Aramaic had taken over, they wanted to teach people how to say it. So they had to add the vowels. And so they added all the junk around it. Junk, I'm sorry, God. The, the vowel pointings around your language. Uh, the dots and dashes, okay? What's interesting, though, if you go to a bookstore in Israel, those of you that have been there, if you ever picked a newspaper up or anything, there's no vowel pointings. As a matter of fact, our Bibles, our Hebrew Bibles, we go to seminary to learn how to read the Bible, it's got the, the dots and the dashes. If you were to take that to Israel, they kind of giggle at you because the only books that have dots and dashes are like, you know, first grade readers, second grade readers. All the adult books, and I don't mean adult books, um, <laughs> never seen any Israeli adult books, uh, they have no dots and dashes. They, they, they just expect that you know how to pronounce the words, and it's still 22 consonants. Okay, no vowels. Here's the other hard thing. No spaces. 
No sp- I'm so thankful for English having spaces between the words. No spaces between the words. It was what they call, I forget the Latin phrase, a con- continuum scriptum or whatever they called it. And all the words just ran together. Okay? Now that created some problems. And let me just give you one. Turn to Amos chapter 6, and this is just for fun. Because it's all about fun on Thursday night. Turn to Amos chapter 6. Here's a classic problem. And I didn't look in all the translations to see how people dealt with this. But we'll see. I know the NIV. I know, yeah, NIV. I don't have an ESV on me, but you can look to see how they dealt with it. I know the KJV deals with it the same way. Now, this may not mean much, but here's the sentence, the second phrase. Okay, let me, let me you got it? You, you have it in front of you there? Look at verse 12. Do horses run on, on rocky crags? Okay, is that what you have? Next phrase. This is the one that's up on the screen. Does one plow there with oxen? That's what the NIV says. Do you see the word there? Scratch it out because that's not on the screen. Okay, more on that in a minute. Then it says, but you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. Here's the point. Do horses run on rocky crags? That's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? No. They're not mountain goats. They're horses. They don't run on rocky crags. Take out the word there. Does one plow with oxen? What's the answer to that? Yeah. Durr. That's not the answer we want, right? Rhetorically, we need the answer no. So there's two ways to deal with that, okay? Let's look at the screen, okay? A little Hebrew lesson, because I know that's what you came here for tonight. <laughs> Am. This little, little word right here. We know that's a word, right? That's the word uh, or. Is that going to pop up? There it is. That's the word or, okay? The next word here, we can easily pull that one out, right? And this has got a, a yod in the front of it. Karash, that means we'll, we'll plow. One will plow, okay? Am ya karash. One will plow. Now, here comes the next big word, right? All the Hebrew words have three vowel roots, but here's the bait. It's got a double bait there. The first bait there uh, is, is with, okay? A- and then bakarim, bakarim. Bakar is oxen. Ba in front of it is with, with oxen. And then im, you might remember this, I am at the end of a Hebrew word is a plural, right? Cherubim, seraphim. If it's one, we call it a seraph. If it's one, we call it a cherub, right? Im, I am, is plural, okay? Oxen doesn't need a plural. Oxen is a word that you can translate without it, and most places you don't have it. And I say most places. I'd have to do the word study on that. But you don't need I am at the end of oxen. Oxen is naturally plural. Now, you can put a plural on it, and sometimes you do, okay? So as it reads, the question is, or, remember we're going from right to left, or will one plow with oxen? And the answer to that is yes. NIV, KJV, I think ESV adds a word there to try and give it the no answer that they, that they need, that the rhetoric and grammar needs. So they say, will one plow there with oxen? Well, I wouldn't plow on craggy rocks. No, I wouldn't do that. But that's not what it says. Here's something that may solve the problem. If you don't need an eem, right, on bakar for oxen, Here's another way to look at this, okay? You take im off, you Hebrew students might remember this, not a pretty common word. Im is the Hebrew word for the sea, 
That's the word for see. Now, if oxen doesn't take a plural, doesn't need a plural, right? Im means see. If I had a break there, I'd know. Then it reads, or does one plow with oxen on the sea, right? And the answer to that would be no. You don't plow on the sea, okay? This is one example of the problem of not having spaces. And occasionally, translators get to these things and say, well, we have to depend on you know, well, we, we're making guesses. Do, which, should there be a space there or not? So when God initially had these things recorded, there were no spaces, and I just thought it'd be fun to show you one example. Was that, was that any fun? Okay, yeah. So which one is it? I, I'll have that question at the end of the night. Well, which one is it? I don't know. I don't know. It's one or the other. I like this one better because you don't have to supply an extra word, Right? Although it's not uncommon to supply an extra word, and most translators go with that. Do you plow on rocky crags? Or do, you, do you plow there with oxen? But the eem uh, is sea. Will one plow with oxen on the sea? No? All right, enough of that. Maybe that wasn't worth having. But All right, there's another language, Aramaic. Aramaic, some people think, well, Aramaic, that is, what's that look like? looks like Hebrew. It's like asking, what does Spanish look like? Well, it looks like English. But the words don't make any sense. <laughs> I mean, if you don't know Spanish, they don't make any sense because it's all the letters in the wrong places. That's Aramaic. Okay? Aramaic and Hebrew, they're the same characters, different definitions. Aramaic came from the north. Think this through now. The northern kingdom got taken over by the Assyrians, 521 B.C., and the language now... Like, much like the people who intermarried, the Jews who intermarried with the Assyrians, which is why the southern Jews hated the northern Jews after the Assyrian defeat, because they weren't supposed to intermarry with the Gentiles, and they did. They also started to conflate language. And a lot of the Jews from the south ended up moving to the north, and there was a pocket of, of Orthodox Jews from the south who lived in the north in the area of the Sea of Galilee, right? That was a nice area to be in if you've ever been to Israel. The language predominantly continued to grow was a conflation of Hebrew and some Syrian dialects that turned into Aramaic. Aramaic looks like Hebrew, but it's not. It's different. It started in the 6th century to take hold, 6th century BC. And it took hold right on up through the time of Christ and died out around the 7th century AD. So that's a long time for Aramaic, for the people of God, the Jewish people, to be speaking Aramaic. And you think about that, 6th century BC is when they started to speak it, and it started to take over, and it went all the way through the New Testament time into, you know, modern church history, and you think, wow, we should be seeing some things in the Bible that are Aramaic, and you're exactly right. It replaced Hebrew. I already said that. And when I say it replaced Hebrew 6th century BC, it didn't replace it by the 6th century. It started to invade in the 6th century, and it took over by the time of Christ among the Jews. To where in the time of Christ, a lot of them couldn't even speak Hebrew anymore. They couldn't read it because they were so inundated by Aramaic. Now, there are some Old Testament sections and New Testament words in Aramaic. Let's talk about those. These will be familiar to you because we transliterate most of them. Well, this won't. Daniel chapter 2. This is the biggest section of Aramaic in the Bible. Verse number 4 
through chapter 7, verse 28, completely changes the language on us. It'd be like reading an English biography, and then all of a sudden it turns into Spanish for, you know, a big chunk of the, of the book. That's what Daniel does. Why? Well, that's where he starts talking about the king's interpretation. He interprets the king's dream, which is all about, and this is a fascinating book, about the times of the Gentiles. And he, he finishes the discussion of the time of the Gentiles in chapter 7, and then he gets back into Hebrew. It's a poetic and rhetorical literary device to talk about how the times of the Gentiles will dominate, and we're living in it now. And it was symbolic of really uh, a lot of bad things, but some good things that God had planned in the Gentile church. I think of that sometimes. Here we are, a bunch of non-Jewish people worshiping a Jewish God. I say a Jewish God. Obviously, he's super cultural, but you know what I'm saying. Ezra. There's two sections in Ezra, chapter 4, 8 through 6, 18, and 7, 12 through 26. Ezra chapter 4, verse 8 through chapter 6, 18, and then it goes back to Hebrew, and then in verses 12, of chapter 7 through 26, that's all in Aramaic. And if you know the book of Ezra, you might remember there's all, these, all this correspondence going from, you know, uh, from Syria to Palestine, back and forth, and he starts reading letters in the middle of this book, and those are recorded and some discussion about those letters and decrees in Aramaic. All right, now here's the fun stuff. New Testament Aramaic. This is going to sound familiar to you. I said Syria, by the way. Who, who was in charge in Ezra? It wasn't the Syrians. It was the Persians. Whatever, just correcting that. Here's, I've tried to give you all the, all the Aramaic words, and they're fun because we see them and they just transliterate. And one is this one in Mark 5.41. I guess some translations now tuck them away, you don't see them. But uh, Talitha Kum means, uh, means little girl arise when Jesus takes the hand in Mark uh, 5.41 and he gets, raises the girl up. And, and uh, the note in the NIV is little, which means, uh, Talitha Kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Little girl, rise, get up. Um, remember this one from Mark 7:34. He looks up into heaven with a deep sigh, right? He's about to heal this guy, and he says, "Ephratha, Ephratha, Ephratha," and that means what? Ephratha means be opened. He's about to heal the guy. Open his eyes. Be opened. That's Aramaic. It's a lot like it's a lot like Hebrew. So New Testament, it's not in Hebrew. It's in Greek. And all of a sudden, we get these words and these phrases in Aramaic. How about this one, Matthew 5? You're not supposed to say this about your brother. Raka. You ever read the footnote on that one? I think the NIV still keeps that word in the text, does it? Yeah. Did I write it down here? Uh, yeah, I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to the judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, will be answerable to the Sanhedrin. Raka was an Aramaic word, which meant stupid. Knucklehead, rock, rocks in your head. That's one way I remembered it, because raka sounds like rock. How about this one, Maranatha? You've heard that one. Oh, yeah, I know that one. Maranatha, and what does that mean? Well, depending on where you split the word, here's another interesting continuum scripta. Uh, it either means... Uh, 
come, Lord Jesus, right? Uh, or that the Lord Jesus is coming. Either way, it's a, it's a statement in judgment. It's either an indicative or an optative of come and come back or the Lord is coming. It's a threat, actually, in the context. Bottom line, Christ is coming back. Come, Lord. Yes, he is. That's good. How about this one, mammon? And I do think the NIV hides this word. I think I noted that. Yeah, that's twice in the New Testament. No one can serve two masters. He'll hate the one, love the other, or he'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, is what the NIV says. But that's an Aramaic word, mammon. And I think the NAS put it mammon. I don't know. You got an ESV in front of you? What does that say? Matthew uh, 6.24. Does it say mammon or money? That would be interesting to know. Money. Okay, there you go. Probably got a footnote, though, doesn't it? And it says mammon, does it not? Yeah. What does KJV have? Somebody have that? No? Mammon, I think, yeah. NIV said mammon. All right, how about this one? Raboni. I love that, Raboni. What's that? Teacher, right. Rabbi means teacher. But it's an Aramaic word. It's foreign to the Greek text. But there it is. Used twice. How about this one? Abba. It's not, a, it's not a band from the 70s. <laughs> Abba. What's it mean? Father. Yeah. Father. Dad. And I know people preach on that like daddy. It's, it's really not a syrupy word. It is an intimate word. But, you know, they make it sound sicky sweet. It's not. It, it's relational. How about this one? Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani. Sabachthani. What's that one? When, that took place on the cross. Remember Jesus cries out on the cross? That's Aramaic. This is interesting. Not Greek. This is not the Septuagint he's quoting. That's Aramaic for Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting, though. That, that mean, The Bible they were carrying was probably the Septuagint in Greek, and yet he quotes this in Aramaic. Matthew 5, 18. The underlying text is really coming from Aramaic that we translate jot and tittle. I know I always say seraph and yoth, but that's not what the text says. That's what a jot and tittle is, but that's not what the text says. Two more, and then we're done. Mark 7, 11. Corbin. Corbin. That was a word that was used in the Bible to mean something that was devoted to God. You see a $5 bill on the kitchen table on Sunday morning. You say, oh, I need that. And, and your, your kid says, no, that's going in the offering. Can't have that, Dad. <laughs> uh, that's Corbin, set aside for God. That's an Aramaic word. How about this one, Hosanna? You know that one. We know Maranatha and Hosanna. We don't know any of the other ones. Hosanna, what does that mean? Save us now. Save now. Hosanna. That means save now. And it's Aramaic. Those are the Aramaic words. Now, let me make this point because I know most people, if they read at all, they say, well, I've read that uh, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Probably did all his teaching in Aramaic. I'm not buying that. Uh, I know that's the prevailing view. But one of the reasons is because of these however many words we just wrote down, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 
14, 15, 16, whatever, if you add them all up. These words in Aramaic were recorded by the authors, many of them coming out of the mouth of Jesus, and they're uniquely recorded because I think they're uniquely stated. Why didn't he just say, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why didn't he say it in Greek? Why didn't he record it in Greek? Because he said it in Aramaic, and that was different. See, that's, especially because so much of Jesus' ministry, and I can't sell you on this if you're one who believes that Jesus preached in Aramaic, but when Jesus sets up his ministry home, where is it? What city was Jesus' headquarters? Capernaum, Capernaum, right? The city of, of, of Capernaum. It was, the, it was the gateway, the pulpit, if you will, to the Decapolis. The Decapolis were the ten cities of the modern marketplace. It was like the Chicago, the L.A., the New York. It was, that's what it was. He would, it makes total sense to me with his missions mindset that he did his preaching in Koine Greek. So let's talk about Koine Greek with the few minutes we have left here. Greek. That, of course, with the exception of what we just noted, is what all of the, new, the rest of the New Testament is recorded in. And it is my belief, it is what Jesus and the apostles taught in for the most part. It is Koine Greek. I use that word a lot to distinguish it from other kinds of Greek, Attic Greek and other ancient forms of Greek, or even modern Greek. Koine means common. It's not common now. It's common in the first century. Alexander the Great came and conquered the world, and he wanted his language, the Greek language, to, to prevail, and it did. And Koine, or common Greek, was the composite language of the, of the Greek world which also had been, because of Alexander the Great, had spilled over by the Roman period to be the common language of the day. There are 24 characters. How many characters in Hebrew were there? Now we're moving up. How many in English? I really don't know. Is it 26? I know Greek and Hebrew. 24 in, in uh, Greek. Now, vowels are included, right? Alpha, Epsilon, Eta, Iota, Omicron, Omega, What's great about Greek, too, is that half of them have short vowels and long vowels. We don't. A-E-I-O-U, we get that. They tell us the distinction between short and long vowels, which is helpful. But it has less consonants, more vowels, 24 characters total. The great thing about Greek is it's very precise. This is the great thing and the laborious and difficult thing if you're taking Greek right now. It's very exacting and precise. It's what we call a, a highly inflected language. We have inflections in English, but not many. We have inflections like instead of saying C-A-N space N-O-T, we can say C-A-N apostrophe T. That's a contraction. That's one kind of inflection, but it really doesn't change the meaning. The meanings that change are very few. We, we make things possessive. Mike's book, M-I-K-E apostrophe S is not Mike and some contraction, it's an inflection. That means Mike possesses that book. Now that becomes a, a genitive. It shows that I'm, I'm possessing something. The Greek language is highly inflected. At the beginning of the word, at the end of the word, everything changes, and those changes all have precise and exacting meanings. And that's the great thing. If you want to communicate clear doctrine and theology, that's why Greek is so helpful, because it is so highly inflected. Now, some people say, well, that's great. I'm going to go to Greece and, and learn Greek. Well, you're not going to learn the language of the Bible. The language of the Bible is a dead language. Unlike, and this is interesting, Hebrew. Hebrew is a resurrected dead language. 
and now they use it. If you go to Israel today, they will be speaking the Hebrew of the Bible with, of course, added vocabulary for modernized concepts. Greek is not spoken today, not biblical Greek or Koine Greek. Modern Greek is different. It's very much more it's streamlined. It's very different. All right. Here is today's Koine typeset Greek. This is what you find in a Greek New Testament. And it seems like everybody wants to put it in italics, so I put it in italics. But anyway, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta. Most of you, a lot of you know this because, like I said, mathematics and science and um, fraternities, sororities, thank you, astronomy. You have to learn some of these. But anyway, there's your, there's your modern typeset Koine Greek. Now, modern Greek shares the same typeset, but in the past, it looked very different. First century Koine Greek looked like this. If you were to have you know, looked over somebody's shoulder as they were writing a New Testament document, it would look more like this. This is first century Koine Greek. First century, because it is part of the Septuagint, actually. And you can see already, early on in the church, it was put in caps. Here is what at least is the most, the earliest undisputed document uh, of the New Testament, just to compare it to what's up there. This is the Rylands Papyrus. I gave you a picture of this, I think, somewhere. No, I didn't, actually. I gave you some other, um, some other ones. But they, this, is, it, this is probably from 117 A.D. to maybe 135 A.D., somewhere in there. But this is the earliest, undisputed earliest papyrus, P52, Rylands Papyrus. This is the Gospel of John, part of it, obviously. And on the back, we have more. But do you see, if you can, oh, I got my, I have my laser. Well, let's see if we can pick a few things out here. Well, I don't have that fully exposed. But you can see it looks different, right? Let's keep moving up in time. That's modern typeset. Here's 4th century Koine Greek. This is like when you get the, what we call the, the codices, the, the Vaticanus and Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus, all these documents that we're going to look at next week. Um, now it's starting to look a lot cleaner. The problem is it's all in caps. It didn't until later did they start putting them in small case letters because the, the, unlike Hebrew, it doesn't have small case. It does have special characters for the end of words, but it doesn't have small case. Greek has small case and large case, and they love to, to write like I like to write. I don't write small case English letters. I write small case Greek letters, but I don't write small case English letters. They, they did it all in caps. We'll talk about that next week. Majuscules. And we're totally out of time. I wanted to do more. But that's all we got time for. You guys all right? Did you hang in there tonight? All right. Let me pray for you real quick before I let you go. And I hope that you're gleaning something helpful from our, our study. By the way, there's some... That looks to be about on the front of your origins of the Bible... That's probably about 4th century. Now that's later. That's probably 6th uh, century Greek manuscripts. And I'm not sure what Gus picked to do that. I can't remember, but that's a little later than that. All right, let's pray. God, thanks for tonight. Thanks for helping us to think through this. I know this takes more time than just doing a real quick, slick, you know, 45-minute discussion on the reliability of the Bible. But I pray that these extra minutes and hours that we spend this this fall thinking through this 
would help to solidify and bolster and deepen our confidence in your word. Make us good students of your word, and I just pray you would enrich our understanding of your written revelation to us. In Jesus' name, amen.